For he is good. He is good. He was born to conquer the grave. Read a recent Facebook post that read this way. In 1999, we promised with words and rings to have and to hold, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. Twelve years later, I slipped that ring off his hand and kissed him goodbye this side of heaven. Twelve years at his side, twelve years without him. Make no mistake, grief is vicious. It bites and snaps and breathes down your neck with whispers of fear. But after 12 years, maybe I can offer some perspective. You see, the enemy means everything for evil, but God means everything for good. Everything. Not the good we traditionally think of, but the good that makes you long for heaven. And that longing makes you fight sin in a way that makes the enemy nervous. Nervous because he's realizing that neither life nor death will separate you from the love of God. So how can we be so sure that God cares for us this way, even when we step into the deep darkness of death's shadow? Well, for one thing, it's an unavoidable conviction that comes from Scriptures, like what we find in John, Gospel of John, chapter 11. If you have a copy of the Word of God, I invite you to turn to that chapter. We began last week here. We saw that even illness can be to the glory of God, even when it's going to bring a person all the way to the grave. We saw that delay and death and danger can work toward the furtherance of our faith. And we saw the importance of faith in the certain promise of resurrection. So we take up this remarkable account in John 11 once again this morning, and we begin with verse 28. John eleven twenty eight through 44. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she, that is Mary, heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her, that's Mary, in the house, consoling her, when they saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. 
But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did not I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. I want to talk to you this morning about what it would be like if God were standing at the graveside with you as you laid a loved one to rest. We think about dying, we think about funerals, it's a profoundly human thing, but I don't know that we often think about the reality of God with us and his participation with us in those times. So I entitled the message this morning, God at the Graveside, and Jesus shows us, and God at the Graveside, verses 28 to 38, shares in our grief. Just because he's almighty, just because he has a plan, does not mean that he fails to weep with us. He shares in our grief. In 39 to 42, we see that he calls for our faith, and in 43 to 44, that he reverses our death. The bulk of our passage this morning focuses in on Jesus' participation in our grief. He shares in our grief. We read in verse 28, When she had said this, that is, Martha had said this, she went and called her sister Mary. Remember, what she had said is that she believed in Jesus, that he's the Messiah, the Son of God. When she had said this, she called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Jesus' personal concern for both Martha and Mary show up in our passage. He meets Martha, or Martha meets him as he enters the village, and and he calls for Mary. And when Mary hears his call, her her deep trust in Jesus, though, though she's overwhelmed with grief, has her coming to Jesus to meet him. When days are sunny and life is easy, it is easy to lose our sense of how badly we need Jesus. But when great grief overtakes us, His call for us to come to him draws our hearts to him. We could say with the songwriter, when all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. So you may be in a season of deep grief. If you're not today, there will be a day when you are, and there have been days when you have been. In those seasons of deep grief, Will you not hear the master's call to you? He, he 
you know, when we're grieving deeply, we want to go into the proverbial fetal ball. We want to withdraw from others. It sometimes is jarring to us and to be the normal den of activity. We, we pull back, but Jesus would call us to himself and to his side as the one who knows us better than anyone else and the one who can comfort us better than anyone else. Verse 32, we read, Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Mary's words echo that of her sister Martha, and we're going to hear those bystanders at the grave also say a similar thing. The the if-onlys of life haunt us in the day of our calamity. If you trust God and you love God, you want God to intervene and you expect Him to do so, and so it can shake us when He does not. The ever-nagging question is, why? It tears at our hearts, and Mary's statement shows her, her confidence that Jesus could have healed her brother, but, but she struggles with why He didn't come in time to do so. Most of our rescues from death come before death takes us. But this event in Jesus' ministry will demonstrate that He can rescue us even after we died. And so while we want to be rescued from illness and we want to be rescued from death and we praise God when we have those close calls and and God intervenes on our behalf, we need to realize that the worst that death can do is not so great that Jesus cannot rescue us still. Verse 33, we read, When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Mary's weeping and that of the Jews with her touched the heart of Jesus deeply. Jesus teaches us that God is not unmoved by our tears. He's not impervious to our sorrows. Even even though Jesus is going to raise Lazarus within the hour, he doesn't dismiss this weeping of these mourners as foolish. He doesn't remain aloof. He, He doesn't act like this is somehow beneath those that trust in him. Instead, he participates with them. He grieves with them. He feels with them. He's deeply moved. That word carries the idea of actually being indignant. So we ask ourselves, why, why would Jesus be indignant? Why the anger? By the way, it's interesting that, you know, one of the stages of grief is what? It's, it's anger. There, there's, an, there's an outrage to what death does to the human race. And, and we might think, well, being angry about this, that feeling of anger that just naturally comes is so natural that it's like one of the steps, that that, that is somehow wrong. So isn't it striking that Jesus is indignant in the face of this deep grief? The fact is that Jesus knows better than anyone else. How death violates and mocks our dignity and worth as human beings. He was there when there was no sin and death. He was there when Adam and Eve were fresh made in the image of God. 
and the glory of God shone from who they were. The Apostle Paul tells us that the last enemy to destroy it is death. It's an enemy. So Jesus is indignant with the humiliation, the, the deep pain, the crushing sorrow that sin and its curse of death have brought down upon human beings made in God's image to live forever. In fact, the reason Jesus was on the earth at all was to destroy the works of Satan, that lying serpent who deceived and seduced our first parents. Satan murdered the human race that day in the garden when Adam and Eve listened to his voice. And Jesus knew better than anyone else alive what paradise had been like before sin and death brutalized our race. He was deeply moved and he was greatly troubled. It speaks of great emotion to the point of shaking uncontrollably. Now, most of the time, we're able to, to keep it in the road. Most of the time, we're able to, to stifle the, the feelings of emotion that can surge on us. But there are times, there are times when we can shake uncontrollably with great grief and great emotion as we are faced with great calamity. And so he asked in verse 34, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And at that point, Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. And some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. So John keeps underscoring the reality that, that Jesus feels deep emotion as he comes to the tomb. Tears stream down his own face as others sob and cry out, and surely Jesus could have kept Lazarus from dying. They can still remember what had happened only a few months earlier as he healed the man born blind. They did not understand yet that Jesus can do more than just pull someone back from the brink of death. He can bring him up from the grave. Again, he's deeply moved. He's indignant with the brutal pain of it all. And, you know, every time you, you walk into a cemetery and you see, I mean, have you ever thought about it? I mean, you just, you're, you're, you're there like in a, a dormitory of death. All, all these flowers trying to put a happy face on a gruesome reality. I'm so grateful there are no graveyards in heaven. He weeps with those who weep, just as Romans 12, 15 commands us to do. We rejoice with those who rejoice. We weep with those who rejoice. We feel together the things that impact our lives. And this response of Jesus is not uncharacteristic of him, and, it, and it's really an index to, to who God is and what God is like and what his heart is toward us. God in human flesh feels with us and takes action on our behalf. We see this in other parts of his ministry. In Matthew 9, 36, we're told when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. When Jesus looked over the city of Jerusalem, he wept over its rejection of him and the devastation that was going to come upon them when the Romans destroyed the city. And for those who belong to him, even now he has a special sympathy for them as he intercedes for us. In Hebrews 4, we learned 
We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize, to suffer with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect had been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. We need more favor than we can possibly deserve that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You know, what are the interesting things about Jesus' life? There's no mention of Joseph later in his life. And and at least historical tradition is that somewhere along the line, Joseph died. He's around when, when, when Jesus is 12, so it's likely in his teen years that Jesus lost his father. You know, at that, that really critical time, teens, maybe 20s, uh, when, when you really come to, come to respect um, your, your dad and, and learning from him and all that he's put into your life, and you think about the role that Joseph had in his life, I mean, um, you know, to, to be the one called to be the wife I mean, the husband of, of the mother, the virgin born, the virgin mother of the Christ child, to be called to be her husband, to bear the false accusations about his relationship to her. Um, to, can you imagine? I mean, it, it's difficult enough rearing kids, and we, we think, oh, I wish my child, you know, would do right more often. Can you imagine trying to rear a child that always does right? Like, whenever there's an argument, you're in the wrong as a parent, you're always in there. I mean, we know that our kids might think that, but (coughs) Joseph had that role, and and we don't see him anywhere as Jesus begins his ministry. Jesus, Jesus knew about grief, and Jesus knew about sorrow. It's no wonder that Isaiah 53 prophesied of the coming Messiah that he would be, quote, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Isaiah would go on to say, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Think about it. God didn't have to carry this, but as God in human flesh, he chose to bear the sorrows that we bear. And if you want to know what that looks like, you just look at Jesus at the graveside of Lazarus. In Matthew 8, Matthew taps into this passage in Isaiah 53. He says, That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons. He cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. So in his participation in our sorrow, in his compassion for our pain, he also took steps to show that he can heal us from that. Jesus' miracles were about evoking faith from people and his ability to change what what looks like can't be changed. It looks like illness and death are just a part of life and always have been and always will be. And Jesus came to show us, no, no, God is good. God is compassionate. And his compassion isn't just talk. It's also power. And, and the willingness and the compassion to actually release us from our sorrows. The earthly ministry of Jesus over and over again demonstrated the deep compassion Jesus has for hurting people, along with his decisive action to heal the very cause of the pain. And this scene is no exception. God at the graveside 
shares in our grief. One, one, of the, one of the things that happens when we are grieving deeply is there's a profound sense of loneliness that takes over us. Particularly when there are people that we are used to having by our side and, and you know, people maybe that have been there for years, maybe our entire lives, if you're talking about a parent or a grandparent, um, People you expect to be there, people you have learned to rely on, and when they're gone, the profound sense of loneliness is overwhelming. And Jesus wants us to know that he is there and that he grieves with us. So when you come to Jesus with your sorrows, and and I think we can safely say that just as he called Mary to come to him, that he would call you to come to him. What kind of reception do you think he will give you given his response in this chapter? This is is a call for you to lean on him and rest on him and to know that he's not going to turn you away, to know that that he's not cold to your pain. And then what are helpful ways, if you're a believer, what are helpful ways you can share in the grief of your brothers and sisters in Christ that would reflect his compassion. Now, you see Jesus interact with people um, in all kinds of situations, but isn't it interesting that John, John starts with a wedding? That's where the first miracle happens and, and culminates at a funeral. Weddings and funerals, the, the, the big, important life-changing events that happen among a people. Let me encourage you. We have lots of weddings and funerals. Um, we like having lots of weddings. We, we don't enjoy the funerals as much. But, but at our weddings and at our funerals, there shouldn't be just young people at the weddings and just old people at the funerals. By the way, it's not just old people that die, Right? But, but let me encourage you to think about how you can participate in both the joys and the sorrows of your brothers and sisters in Christ. You can be there for them because in, in both cases, their lives are changing for the rest of their earthly existence. And, and when you're there, you, you show the heart of Jesus. Second, Jesus calls for our faith. He not only shares in our sorrows, but he calls for our faith. Verse 39, Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor. That's putting it mildly. Have you ever, like, been out in the woods and come across an animal that's rotting? Have you you ever been around the stench of death? It's not a good smell. For he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did not I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. That tells you that Jesus has already been praying to the Father regarding this whole situation. So why does Jesus give the command to take away the stone? 
I mean, he has the power to raise the dead, and he does. He certainly could have told the stone to move out on its own. If he doesn't have the power to raise the dead, then there's no reason to move the stone and open the tomb. Clearly, Martha is not sure yet what Jesus is going to do. She knows that whatever she asks, he asks the Father, he will do. But, but her concern is the stench of this decaying body. And Jesus answers her concern with a call to faith. He has told her earlier that he is the resurrection and the life and has asked whether she believes that those who believe in him will live and will never die. And she has declared, she has affirmed that she believes. So here he links faith to seeing the glory of God. You want to see the shining splendor of God's compassion and his, and his power and his character, then you must believe. If you believe, you'll see the glory of God. Move the stone, Jesus says, and then trust me and you will see what amazing things God can do. See, God is glorious. God is full of shining splendor, whether we believe or not. But if we're going to benefit from it, we have to believe. If we're going to see, we must believe. So, so why didn't he move the stone himself? Well, I believe he's calling for active faith in what he commands even when we aren't sure what he's going to do. Jesus calls for an act of faith that, that somehow moving the stone is going to lead to something greater. He calls for faith to see the glory of God. And then he prays in front of them. He prays to the Father to show those observing that what he's about to do is according to the power and the will of God the Father. You have heard me, and you always do. Those who were grieving that day need to know that God the Father listens to God the Son when He prays. We still need to know that, for Jesus intercedes for His own to this day. In fact, Romans 8, 34 refers to it. Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. In Hebrews 7, 25, consequently, He is able, He has the power to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. Look, you are not alone in your battles. You're not alone in your grief. Jesus calls for you to believe in him, for he is praying for you. He's interceding for you. He is taking action on your behalf. What Jesus does is what God desires. What Jesus does is what God does. You want to know what God thinks of human suffering and death. He's not blind to it. He's not cold to it. Pay attention to what Jesus does here. He calls for us to trust Him to deal with our death and our sorrows in a way that, that shines out His glory his powerful love, his compassion for human beings struck down by death. God 
is at the graveside, and there he calls for our faith in him. Now, when you think about how critical this is, I mean, why is faith in Christ's loving power to rescue us from the grave critical to our hope of salvation? I mean, think about it. If he can't do this, what gospel is left? If, if believing in Jesus and following Jesus is just about being a do-gooder, you know, it's just about turning over a new leaf and being a better person for a little while, and then you die anyway, and it's all over, and you rot in the grave. What difference does that really make? And, and maybe when, you know, when you're younger, it seems like it's forever till you're going to be older, but when you're older, you realize that last week you were younger. I mean, this life flies by. If there's not more than this, then, then, then who wants it, right? I mean, we need something more. We are created for something more. We're created in God's image. We are created as eternal beings to live. And if the good news can't give us that, if death can, can just swallow that up, then there is no good news. I mean, I often feel this way when, you know, you watch, there, there's been enough years where we, we've had, um, you know, the movies and whatnot. whatnot. You, have, you watch all kinds of very talented, amazing people doing their thing that have been in the grave now for decades. You're still deriving pleasure from what they did, but they're dead. And it, it makes you start to question, what, what's the point of it all? Well, we might join the cynics and say, really nothing, really nothing, unless there is a God who raises the dead. Unless there's a God who wants to do that and who can do that and does do that. He calls for our faith. If you try to build your heaven here, you will be terribly disappointed. I don't care how much you acquire. This time of year is a great time to go to the Biltmore uh, house, okay? And decorated for Christmas, beautiful. You get all kinds of decorating ideas for your own house and smaller version, right? <laughs> the man who built that house lived in it for 19 years and then he died. We enjoy the house that he built. For now. He died. So really important, really important to the gospel. And how does knowing Jesus is ever interceding before the Father for you shape your view of the troubles you're facing right now? Look, don't bear those alone. You, you shouldn't bear those alone. Jesus is well aware of them, and you need to be talking to him about them. And then beyond that, what actions of faith in Jesus is God calling you to exercise for his glory? In other words, don't live life with some kind of purpose. Live life with, with an idea of, of bringing glory to God. Take action that, that fits who Jesus actually is. And then we learn from this passage 
finally, that Jesus reverses our death. God at the graveside reverses our death. Verse 43, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. In the very beginning, God spoke, and out of nothing came everything. Here, Jesus, God the Son, speaks, and life pours into the dead body of Lazarus. He rises to his feet and shuffles to the open door of the tomb where bystanders free him from his linen wrappings. A year and a half earlier, Jesus has already declared that he has this level of power and authority. In John 5, 21, he said, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will, whoever he wants to. In verse 25, he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. So there's a spiritual life as well as a physical life. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He's granted the Son also to have life in Himself. You and I don't have life in ourselves. It was given to us, and it can be taken from us. But Jesus has life in Himself. He's the source of life. And He has given Him, that is the Son, authority to execute judgment because He's the Son of Man, referring to Daniel's prophecy in Daniel 7. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming. Mark the calendar. A moment in time is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who've done good to the resurrection of life, those who've done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Can a dead man hear the voice of Jesus? Lazarus, come out. Yes. Yes. What Jesus does with Lazarus is what he's going to do with us. And in between, he himself has risen from the dead after three days and three nights in the tomb. Without the resurrection, there's no good news, there's no real gospel. If death remains victorious, we have lost, sin has utterly destroyed us, and there's no hope. We're forever prisoners of our mortal bodies. But this Jesus, the Messiah, has conquered death in real history observed and affirmed by eyewitnesses. Death loses. Jesus wins. And with him, we win too. It's not just that one day the human race will figure out a way to keep people from dying. We've been working at that a long time. Even with all our medical advances, we're still centuries short of the lifespans in the dawn of human history before the flood. But even then, every human being's story ended with, and he died. Okay, let's say you live, instead of to 70 or 80, let's say you live to 120 or 150 or 250. Let's just say you can get there. Still ends the same way, and he died, and he died. Jesus is not just going to end death, he's going to reverse it. It's not just that someday there will be human beings that live forever, but the rest of them that have died, well, sorry, they just were born too late, too early. 
Death has mowed down billions of human souls. Jesus will raise to eternal life every single one of them who's trusted in him to save them or her from sin and death. Your believing loved ones that you've laid in the grave, their faces are still in your mind. Their words still ring in your ears. Their deeds still remain etched in your memory. Death will be forced to give them up, and life will surge through their bodies again forever. Just out of curiosity this week, I don't know why I was wondering this, but I I got wondering whether you could still go to the cave where Abraham and Sarah were buried. And sure enough, there is the cave of the patriarchs, still in the area of Hebron, cave of Machpelah, and the West Bank. There are even services still held there by both Muslims and Jews, because they both revere Abraham. Well, that will not always be the case. Bodies that have been moldering in tombs and graves, marked and unmarked, over all the globe, Christ will raise new, more alive than ever, never to die again. All the ravages of death will be gone. He will undo what death has done. So how can knowing that Jesus will completely reverse and remove whatever death has done to us help you face its current impact on you? You know, one of the big struggles that that those in my age group and older have is like, come on, like this, this life's going too fast, and who's the old person looking back in the mirror? This is, this is like, it just, it just seems very different from that end of the scale than from the beginning. And there's all kinds of ways that we're reminded that we're, we're getting older, not just how we look, but how we feel and things that don't work like they used to. Well, how can knowing that Jesus is going to completely reverse all that help you deal with life right now? Jesus spoke and Lazarus came to life. So what does that tell you about the power of God's Word to produce miraculous change? In fact, Jesus himself talks about producing spiritual life in us the same way he will produce physical life at the resurrection. Those who hear will live. And what areas in your life or the lives of those around you need the resurrection power of Christ at work in them? The kind of of power that Paul talks about in Ephesians 1 where he's praying that they would know this resurrection power evident in their lives. You know, this is a level of power beyond anything we know. It comes only from Jesus. He reverses our death. God at the graveside shares in our grief. He shares in it. You're not alone. He calls for our faith. Just lean on him. Trust him. Because ultimately... He's going to reverse our death forever. That Facebook post, it continued. So use your grief 
to whisper back to the enemy, you are weak, and you will not use this to change how I believe or whom I serve. And let it keep you in the all-satisfying, comforting, strong arms of Jesus where you will find hope and rest. God is at the graveside. You're going to be okay. Let's pray. God, death is something that we really don't like to think about much. We generally don't look forward to it unless life has become so difficult that it seems an escape. And Lord, when it takes people from us that we love deeply, part of us dies with them. So God, we thank you that you are the God of life. And that as the source of life who gave us our being in the first place, that you can give us life and that you do. Lord, I pray for your life-giving power to be evident in our lives. Lord, if we've been called out of darkness into this marvelous light, help it be evident to everyone that we have life from Jesus. And Lord, as we encounter the hurdles, as we face the illnesses and the sorrows, the difficulties, the suffering, and ultimately as we come to the day of our death, Lord, may we trust you. As we reach that point where there's nothing else we can do, let us rest in you. And Lord, we thank you for your promise. We did not bargain for it. You just gave it, that you will recover us from the grave and that we will enjoy eternal life if we believe in you. God, there are people here this day who have yet to trust Jesus. They're pretty cocksure of themselves that they can handle life. But one thing's for certain, they will lose when they face death. They will lose unless they trust you to rescue them from its jaws. So God, I pray, I pray that you would call them to you and grant them repentance and faith. And Lord, I pray for those who are already trusting you like Mary and Martha as we weep in our sorrows, as we're crushed by our pain. I pray that we would find our hope and our joy in you who's conquered the grave and who stands with us at the graveside. For it's in Christ's name we pray.